Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr Mikla Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a changing Europe project that's all about what Brexit means for UK citizens who've made their homes and lives in the EU27. Today's episode is the 26th episode in the Brexit Brits Abroad series, and it's also the final instalment of the three-part series that we recorded live at our event from Mobile Citizens to Migrants back in May. The panellists, I'll just remind you, are Alir Ahad from Migration Policy Institute Europe, Nadine Elanani from the Centre for Research into Race and Law at Birkbeck, University of London, Omar Khan of the Runnymede Trust, and Nando Sagona, the research lead for another UK and a Changing Europe-funded project, that's the EU Families and Eurochildren project, based at the University of Birmingham. In today's instalment, we are going to be talking about questions of citizenship, identity and belonging. These are questions that have been of central importance to ongoing discussions around Brexit and what it means for EU citizens living in the UK as much as for UK citizens living in the EU27. What the discussion today does is to relocate those questions back into broader conversations around how migration regimes, migration governance, citizenship regimes and governance intersect with questions of identity and belonging. So we'll cover the future of freedom of movement, and think about exclusions and inclusions into processes of citizenship. Karen started by asking Alia to reflect on these considerations around citizenship, identity and belonging. Coming from Brussels, I just wanted to start off maybe by saying that you know Brexit isn't the only challenge facing the EU at this juncture, and it's not even the only threat to freedom of movement facing the EU. There's still a the reintroduction of temporary border controls in the Schengen area in France, Austria, Germany, etc. But it's clear, as has been said already, that free movement is at the centre of the European project. It's one of the most celebrated aspects of EU citizenship. And there was a, a recent Eurobarometer came out that said 81% are in favour of free movement of EU citizens and 69% of respondents said they felt like an EU citizen. And those are important things to keep in mind. But... Uh, Within this question of articulating citizenship and Britishness and Europeanness, I think there are a few points worth mentioning. The first that I'll make is just that freedom of movement does not necessarily equate with mobility. So freedom of movement uh, from the draft withdrawal agreement, at least, we can see that there's this divorce between freedom of movement as the right to reside and freedom of movement as the right to be mobile or to secondary movement. The latter is completely ignored within the, the latest draft of withdrawal agreement. In fact, the article that said we're not talking about this was even deleted um, from the draft withdrawal agreement. But there's a risk that by doing this divorce between residence and secondary movement within free movement rights, it'll cause disruptions to UK nationals living in the EU that we cannot even anticipate. Because as I said before, we're not collecting the right data to know who this population is. And I think this uncertainty in particular means that the UK especially should be prepared for returning British nationals who may also need immediate access to healthcare and benefits, particularly if they're elderly or infirm and may need help navigating the 
the habitual residence test and, and other ways to access services, especially if they've been long-term residents elsewhere. I'll go quickly because I know we want to have time for questions. So a second point I wanted to make is just about this looming question over whether EU citizenship could be divorced from member state citizenship. And there's actually a case that's been referred to the European Court of Justice now brought by some UK citizens living in the Netherlands. And maybe we'll get into the discussion later about what the implications and, and trade-offs of that could be. I don't think that there, I mean, there aren't any bodies within the EU that are currently capable of granting EU citizenship that's removed from national citizenship. And it, it's probably unlikely in the foreseeable future, but that may be something that we, that we want to touch on later and in terms of actually what makes someone a citizen, because the rules governing citizenship obviously vary dramatically from country to country and aren't, aren't based on a real philosophical exploration of what makes a good citizen. It's usually just based on different historical circumstances or part, political um, posturing in different countries. And then the last point that I'll make, and I had a few discussions on this in the break, was that about Brexit has the potential to narrow conceptions of Europeanness. Mm. As I said before, I'm a British national technically, though I wouldn't classify myself as European, even though I have an EU uh, citizenship. And I think it's interesting because among British citizens, Brexit is creating a new class of free movement exercisers and their families who are able to keep most of their EU rights after Brexit. And then everyone else. So those who are, have not exercised free movements or those who formerly exercised free movements. And they will be subject to host member states' uh, national immigration rules as opposed to EU rules. And so it remains to be seen, but potentially this will reintroduce or re reinforce inequalities in mobility between Britons with a European heritage who may be able to access an alternative European citizenship and those without that European heritage who are only British. And this also may have... Yeah, implications on what Europeanness means within the British context. Because right now, theoretically, at least, though we've heard in practical terms, it doesn't work out. But Europe is theoretically available to everyone, whereas uh, it will become more remote after Brexit. And then the last point I'll make, and which I also think is worth mentioning, is just that the loss of the UK in the European Union is a step back in some ways for promoting diversity within the concept of Europeanness and also within European institutions and policymaking. And I was describing earlier, there was a Politico series back in December, Brussels So White, I think it was called. And it basically looked at how Brexit will change the face of the European Union and make it much whiter. Around half of the non-white members of the European Parliament are British. And uh, that's actually something that we should sink in for a little while. Wow, fascinating note to end on. Thank you. Mm. Omar, would you like to? Yeah, I, I, I was invited by one of them, Claude Morris, mm -hmm. to speak uh, on this issue. And we were involved in the late 90s in the drafting of the race directive. And I do think it's one of the things that will be missed. Uh, the British argument for collecting data, the British approach to uh, tackling racial inequalities will be, will be missed at the commission level. Who, who is going to advocate for those issues within the parliament, within the commission with the UK gone. I'm also worried as well about, from a kind of European perspective already with Orban saying that, you know, not simply that Hungary shouldn't have any Muslim or black people living in it, but that <coughs> he looked at France and the UK as failed examples and explicitly saying that those people, i.e. black and Asian, uh, French and British people were not really European. So there will be, I think with Britain leaving as well, increasing potentially a block within the EU. And I think this speaks, though, to the failure of the Commission really to implement the race directive and to some of the, the values and rights 
that were supposed to define Europe rather than, I mean, I think there is this tension now in Europe as well as in the UK. I don't think it's limited to Europe by any stretch between are we going to define ourselves in terms of values or are we going to define ourselves in terms of ethno-nationalism? And there's, there's a real test here. And I think freedom of movement has always been seen as part of that the values bit, but I'm just as worried about the values of, there's no point in people being free to move if they can't exercise equally the rights once they move to those countries. And then I want to say two quick things about a UK perspective on, on, on this. So I think the one, I suppose, hopeful note is, I mean, Britain doesn't just have two tiers of citizenship, there's five forms of citizenship. You know, we have all these kinds of hangovers from Hong Kong and all these things. So hopefully this will be if there's a rational person in the home office that they will try to get rid of these multi-layered forms of citizenship. Most British people don't, are unaware actually that we don't have birthright citizenship. And if you ask the public, they are in favor of it. And it's one of the things that, that from the grandchildren of Windrush. So I think there might be an opportunity with the decline of some of the debate on immigration to look more rationally at our citizenship law, to reduce the fees for, it's 1,200 pounds to become a British citizen. So hopefully there will be some, some thought. I'm, being, I'm trying to be optimistic about some of those, those things, as you can hear. The other kind of hopeful, but also I suppose somewhat scary thought actually post Windrush, because we still haven't had that conversation about empire, is that in a way we, we deferred the conversation about who we were post empire because we wore the cloak of Europeanness but we never wore it very comfortably. We were always a little bit not really European. And that's fundamentally where a lot of these uh, issues have come from. We didn't participate equally in Erasmus. We always sent the fewest people to apply for stagiaires. All of this, we were sort of half in. Now that we take off the cloak of Europeanness, maybe we have to face uh, who we are a bit. So that's my kind of thought about our identity post-Brexit. Thank you very much. And thank you for trying to be positive. Yeah. <laughs> Nanda. I take a slightly different angle. Um, it's interesting about the question about the Europeanness, because, I mean, from the interviews we did, very few people ever consider it. I mean, it's, it's, one of the things we ask is to what extent you feel European or European or whatever it is. And it's something that became relevant as part of the Brexit debate in many, for many people in different ways. I mean, you just need to serve the number of uh, EU flags that you've never seen in this country until after the referendum. I mean, the moment, uh, you know, behind people when they talk, etc. That's quite an interesting <laughs> change. You know, when uh, an identity becomes relevant, to what extent is uh, constructed in response to specific contingency or circumstances, etc. The interesting thing about the freedom movement, the idea to 1% of people that really sort of uh, love it as a one of things, is that then uh, the actual people that move is much lower than that, mm. similar with Erasmus. I mean, the Erasmus, mm. despite the 40 years, uh, is more or less the 5% of the, of the youth actually enjoyed it, has never changed that much. With some countries, as you said, Britain never, we also, I, I'm also an Erasmus officer in my, in my department, so I know that how difficult to send students yeah. to another European country, unless they got some heritage from the country. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, it's always been uh, one of the preferred destinations, etc. So it's quite interesting how, even in a context of theoretically a freedom of movement, is the, the fact that this there as a potential that is really part of constructing this European identity is that. And one thing which I think was interesting in the research we are doing on the generation, I mean, one way of uh, presenting these Euro children in our project is to look at them as a second generation Europeans and trying to see to what extent within, in, uh, within the space of the family, this tension that produces the changing politics 
of belonging is negotiated and mediated and transformed. What is interesting, and we were talking over lunch about this with Karen, was that while, for example, the parents, the first generation EU national that moved to Britain, feel very anxious about the, um, the ridge, the gap that the Brexit is putting between them and their children. So people, for example, told us, you know, I'm really worried because my children that are born here, they seem to become more and more British. And now I'm not even allowed anymore to make jokes about the Brits because they get offended. <laughs> On the other end, uh, some of the interview we did is said with uh, uh, Euro children, with people that were born in Britain from parents with, uh, and from another EU27 nationality, pointed out that they were inside. They were not very worried about themselves in many ways. We were expecting more tension about, oh, you grew up in an environment where you are meant to be British and European at the same time. And then how do you reconcile that? We're expecting this kind of debate. Instead, what the people were expressing were anxiety for their parents. So the, the your children are worried about their parents and the parents are worried about their children in a sense for different reasons. So this idea of uh, some of the parents we have come across were in a situation in which they migrated 40, 35 years ago from Italy, for example, they never applied for any form of documentation and there is no track record of that. They've been here and now they are over 70s and they and basically they are kept invisible because they are worried about as soon as they present their documents to your office, they will basically become receive a letter of expulsion, etc. So it's quite interesting dynamics there. Thank you very much, Mikola uh, and then Nadi. So I think there are a few things that, that other people have said that I want to pick up on. And what I wanted to go back to uh, the conversation that we were having previously about freedom of movement and remind people that freedom of movement within the European Union was always primarily about labour market integration. So it is framed very much around the needs of labour market integration across the European Union. And that's why it has this particular character. As I said, it discriminates against disabled populations, for example. And there are some sectors within the European Union which are a really big success story in relation to European um, integration, of which higher education is actually one. Um, so higher education, particularly research that's conducted within the higher education sectors across Europe, is a really good example of European integration to the point where, I don't know if this is the case in your study, we have quite a lot of people who take part in the citizens panel for the Brexit Brits Abroad project who have exercised their freedom of movement to go and work in specialist research labs across the European Union who might be there on short-term contracts and who now are worried that they're going to find themselves in a position where there will be no continuation of their contracts and where they will also not have any continued freedom of movement around the European Union. So again, going back to the oxymoron, freedom of movement was never really about movement. It was about settlement because the assumption is that an integrated labour market is a settled labour market. In respect to what we're finding out in respect to questions of citizenship and identity, um, I think there's some similarities and some differences in what Nando, to what Nando's described. Karen and I, in our previous work, had noted that British populations <coughs> in Europe very rarely use the E-word. They would very rarely refer to themselves as European. Mm -hmm. And yet in starting this project and going back to France, I've come across a greater number, probably <laughs> the majority of the people who, who we talk to, will use that as a way of distinguishing themselves from what they see as a Britain that no longer wants them, a Britishness that no longer represents them. Mm. Now, I think there are various ways that we can explain this. I suspect that in earlier research that we we're conducting, um, people who would take part in our research and were more likely to be the people for whom being British meant something. 
And the people who felt that Britishness might contain some element of Europeanness may not therefore have come forward to take part in ethnographic research about British populations who've settled in Europe. But I do also think that probably we're talking about a situation where we're, mm -hmm. in my case, 15 years later in terms of European integration. And the people who are moving, who've moved in the interim in the 15 years between when I started doing my PhD research and, and the research that I've more recently been doing about Brexit and British populations abroad are, you know, the product of a different era of European integration. So we've really been questioning the meaning that's there. Um, that's behind all of that. And I think that um, certainly I don't think that we can understand what those uh, UK citizens who've settled or are moving around Europe are saying about being European from what they say about being British at this point in time. So really looking into the kind of cultural significance of those identities for those populations, while also, you know, taking those, you know, within a framework of understanding that to even be able to claim those identities is produced through a whole set of historical uh, circumstances that mean that these people were able to exercise their freedom of movement at particular points in time when others weren't. Thank you. Yeah, just to go back, I think, really to a point that I was making earlier is that when we're thinking about transformations in citizens, rights and sort of supposedly secure statements, the status is becoming insecure. It's important to highlight that statuses like British citizenship, which of course EU citizenship derives from, are not stable and secure categories um, for people who are racialized as non-white. So whilst um, white British people may think that they're losing something for people who are British, maybe would never even have felt that they had something that they could actually rely on, or if they did, they've learned the hard way that that wasn't the case. So for instance, um, those historically disenfranchised by changes to British nationality law, like the 1981 British Nationality Act and 1971 Immigration Act, have sought and failed to rely on EU free movement, which they actually saw as something that might empower them to regain some of those rights when those changes came in. Um, so they've actually asked the court, European Court of Justice for recognition as EU citizens so have rights of entry and stay and work in, in Britain and in the EU. For example, the core case of 2001, where you had a resident of a British overseas territory, had lost her right, had been stripped of her right to enter Britain after the 1981 British Nationality Act, even though she was still classed, she had a sort of sub-citizenship of Britain, she asked the European Court of Justice to recognise an EU citizen so that she could join her family, but also live work in Britain. And the court said, um, no, it's for um, member states to decide their nationality. Um, and of course, we know that the political context for the changes in those laws was precisely Britain turning away from its Commonwealth markets and looking instead to Europe as a way to kind of to grow its economy. But of course, there are also people within um, <laughs> Britain, who are undocumented and may have lived here for a short period of time or a very long period of time, but don't have British citizenship and therefore don't have European citizenship, again, because it derives one from the other. And we've seen post the Windrush cases, children who, for example, their parents never sort of sorted out their documentation, who um, can't study, can't get a student loan and are basically living extremely precarious existence and at risk of being deported. Indeed, some have. And there have been cases of people who won 
case, at least I know of a woman who died after being deported and didn't have adequate medical health care. So alongside immigration law, it's important to um, look at nationality law as um, being influenced by Britain's imperial projects and also being instrumentalized to regulate belonging and who should be allowed to belong and who shouldn't. And Britain isn't, doesn't tend to be talked about as having had a white Australia policy because it wasn't explicit, but really we can see those changes to legislation in the 70s and the 80s as really constructing for the first time, an identity of Britishness as being white and tied to a very specific geographical location, which prior to that period, prior to 1981, was never articulated in those terms, of course, because of Britain's imperial identity. So those changes, of course, have very um, catastrophic uh, implications for peoples, as we have discussed previously, who come up against the border, both internally and externally in, in these violent ways. And on that, I want to draw attention again to the um, deprivation of citizenship laws, which um, precede Brexit, but are a very good example of the way in which citizens can become non-citizens. Um, so there have been deprivation of citizenship. And if anybody's interested in this, Nisha Kapoor's book, um, Deport, Deprive, Extradite, published by Versus, out recently, so you can read more about those cases. But also the denial of naturalization. So the refusals of naturalization applications on grounds of not being of good character, which affect people, for example, who are who are recognized refugees, but because they may have committed a crime or be suspected of having been committed a crime in the country from which they fled and therefore were given refugee status, um, precise not to return, is then used as a reason to deny them refugee status. But it happens to people who are not so easily celebrated as well. And so this really creates a two-tier citizenship, a British citizenship, whereby racialized subjects are vulnerable to being stripped of that citizenship, let alone, of course, their European citizenship, which would go with it. Um, whilst white British citizens are not at risk. So um, in this way, um, we can see Britain as a space that's actually been constantly racially reshaped and reimagined through law. And of course, we see the um, hostile environment as being an example of this in the way of shaping and producing racialized and policed um, subjects. I think we can predict the future to some extent by looking back, um, something which I'm always trying to do. And I think that we don't do enough in Britain. And in a way, Brexit has kind of allowed a space for um, this sort of discussions to be had, although, of course, the circumstances are extremely unfortunate. So I think if we, again, just to draw on Sarah Ahmed again, the idea that colonialism means that the world is bequeathed before an individual's arrival, and that's not an individual's arrival in terms of as being a migrant, but just in terms of as a person, then we need to be asking really questions about how we how we can insist on a differently um, ordered world. Now, I know, of course, Amri, you're making a call for kind of practical suggestions on this, mm. um, but, you know, people who are involved in kind of anti-racist organizing and really have been for many years have really a lot to teach us on strategies for organizing, for solidarity, for mobilizing. And I don't just mean people within Britain, but people who come from communities which have very long histories of dispossession and um, oppression, whether we talk about black communities living in the UK today or we talk about people People have struggled against colonialism, neocolonialism elsewhere. So it's about actually amplifying those voices, ensuring there are spaces on curricula and in education programs um, for um, people to learn about the history and really understand the history of this country so that we don't have these kind of totally ahistorical sort of assertions and claims made. And we have a really educated sort of discussion on, on these issues. Thank you very much. And, and thank you especially for giving us some real life stories there to bring that all to life for us. It's, it's really great. <laughs> so I'm going to take one final round of questions or comments. Okay, so um, fairly quick questions and fairly quick responses. Yeah. 
Hi, my name is Dinesh. I study law development and globalization at SOAS. I was just thinking about the, the categorization of citizenship and how it actually draws us away from thinking about a global freedom of movement struggle. And I think it's easy for people um, with certain levels of privilege to sit on the ground floor and campaign for freedom of movement against the glass ceiling when there are people in the basement struggling to get to the ground floor in the beginning. And the idea of citizenship is intrinsically tied to ideas of carcerality. So prisoners being denied basic rights that would be given to other citizens and the way in which uh, discrimination is race, racialized and gendered and classed. So I wanted, wondered what the panel thought about um, how to articulate a global struggle for freedom of movement worldwide. Very appropriate question, I think, given what was said earlier. And any more final questions or comments? Then I think that's quite a nice note to end on, actually. So I'll just turn it over to you guys for final thoughts on that. Well, I'm the one who... Obviously. Who, I, I, I mean, I, I promoted it. I mean, that's one of the reasons I suggested that potentially... I mean, you're, you're right, the link between citizenship as, as well, and that certain citizens cannot already can't exercise rights. So I think we do need to focus on improving the quality and nature of our democracies as they exist now. It can't just be either or. And yeah, there might be a, a reason to have constraints on some forms of migration until that happens. But I think we still need to think what kind of what a socially just world would look like that has to tie our account of domestic social justice to our account of global social justice. And I don't think those things are connected very well. And I think in particular, immigration policy is often pulled out of that as a sort of separate thing. Whereas, in fact, that's the bit that would connect our account of what a domestic uh, social justice program looks like in a international global social justice program. And it's one of the reasons I suggest it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I think seriously, which is I think residents of a place for more than a year should have the full panoply of rights that attach to citizenship, regardless of whether or not they have that passport, because democracy involves the freedom to vote. All of those who's interested are affected by the polity under which they're under, I think, should have the ability to decide where this country, where that place is going. So I think that would be one thing. Um, I think the other thing is if we're talking seriously as a short-term view, either we need to expand the notion of who a refugee is beyond the narrow political ones, or we need an additional category because I view migration as a means of international social justice and that more people should move or should have the right to move if they want to move. And therefore, I think we need to open up another route of say, I won't put a number on it, but tens of thousands to every single wealthy country from every single poor country. And that population transfer should uh, be incentivized and encouraged. So that's the other thing. I mean, these are quite utopian ideas, but you can start small, I think, with them. You start pushing these things in a little way, and I think we get there. But in, if we don't tackle racial discrimination and other things, it's, it's, it doesn't fully make sense to expose people to that, of course. But yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I may go for the kind of provocative ending. Um, uh, in, in a sense, if the global freedom movement is actually an outcome to think about positive action. And I say this because yes. uh, we should go back to something behind the ideology of freedom movement, both in European Union and in the context of the empire. I mean, it was not, it's not, I mean, it sounds like a normative concept, which is all beautiful and uh, we should aspire to, but it actually has got a very strong economical, structural, dimension to it. You know, the global freedom movement, the fact that, for example, the international corporation will love it, 
uh, in their stand is something that makes me think about how do we position it? With a one on one end, and this is a controversy and a debate within the open border debate around who really wants it and who doesn't want it. And there is, you know, now if you look at the Labour Party today, it's really uh, at the core of some of the debate. So I think we need really to unpack it uh, a bit more first and really start to think what are the implications in many ways and then start to build on. And, and I think the point of solidarity is a, a very crucial point. I mean, starting from the European nationals that are losing the freedom movement and how they can build alliance with the other migrants, in a sense, within the context of Britain, but also how we can bring it outside. Alia, did you want to add anything? Global freedom of movement is, uh, it's really, a, I think, a radical reimagining of the, the world that we live in today. Even what you said about <coughs> residents being tied to political enfranchisement, I mean, there are decisions made in capitals all over the world that affect the that affect the global population that people aren't allowed to vote in. So it, it, that's yeah, maybe you it. can argue that the U.S. president has yeah. more <laughs> on the lives of people in, in Antigua. Exactly, than the Prime Minister of Antigua. So maybe that's Prime just Minister a, of the UK. Even. A yeah. critique of democracy, maybe not a free movement. But um, yeah. I think one thing I just wanted to say on that point, um, what Nando said, uh, Michael Clemens has a, a piece, maybe a seminal piece on. I think it's $5 billion walking on the sidewalk or something uh, about how much money there is to be gained from free movement. So that may be an ally if you're looking for one. But I just wanted to say in terms of the EU's relationships with third country partnerships, I think that's an area where free movement, at least on a regional basis, could definitely be promoted. Mm -hmm. So the third country partnership framework that they came out with largely discourages mig regional migration and sort of upsets border economies and in fact can deprive people of their livelihoods. Uh, so it has a sort of counter impact or negative impact that wasn't intended. Whereas it's contrary to the African Union's aspirations for the continent, which is to have free movement. So, I mean, it can start on a smaller scale, I think, than trying to go straight for the globe. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but even within ASEAN as well, the Asian countries also have it on their sort of agenda as something potentially. So I think maybe starting, starting regionally would be a, a good place. Yeah, thanks, Dinesh, for that point. I think it's a really good one. And I think, you know, we can always count on you for a kind of um, really um, helpful kind of critical question that kind of um, really shakes what we've all been discussing. And I, I thank you for that. And I think that your way of looking at it should help to sort of restructure how we're looking at things. The only thing that I feel a little bit is a bit premature talking about global free movement is I think that because of the age of global free movement, which essentially meant that white people could emigrate to wherever they wanted. And, you know, it's not talked about, it's, it's unremarkable because it was a level of entitlement that was so ingrained in, and that continues to be ingrained in the way in which our global order is structured as one that is racially hierarchized. Because of that, I'm a little bit wary of, you know, who would actually benefit from something like global free movement. What I would say first is that what we need is an acknowledgement by white dominant, um, powerful states is that colonialism was something and what was done during colonialism was something that was maybe wrong and maybe bad. We're not even there yet where we're actually thinking about apologies and reparations and proper education on colonialism and what it was. Maybe we should be listening to the social movements within former colonial countries who will have very detailed programs of what reparative justice would look like. And I think if we were to start there in terms of what reparative justice would actually look like, then we can begin to, we will begin to unravel some of the things that mean global free movement understood as kind of a ra actual racially equal thing 
would, what it would actually look like would begin to take shape, but we're not even there yet. So I think that we need to start with, with that first. Thanks. All I wanted to finish by saying was it's been absolutely incredible because I've, I've been through all sorts of emotions while I've sat here from sort of excitement and enthusiasm because of the potential for a more positive outcome for some aspects of Brexit, um, obviously depression, but then I have to say this whole project that we're working on around Brexit has pulled me through these emotions anyway. We've raised phenomenal range of issues today. I've got masses of notes and I won't go through them all, but I've really enjoyed thinking about um, categories of migrants and hierarchies of migrants, precarity and privilege, um, the normality of, of migration and sort of the assumptions around the abnormality of migration. That's something that's always driven me crazy that all sorts of other things like um, when, when Omar said freedom of movement has been a recognition of, of multicultural identity, that really struck me. We've had a lot of attention drawn to um, the diversity of migrants, the power of states and the role of the state in um, monitoring migration and mobility. Um, some wonderful <coughs> stories that have really illustrated the complexity and sometimes the sadness around migration. I didn't want to change the debate, but I think we could have heard a little more about things around poverty and class and ability, disability, but that probably would have been a whole different panel. So um, once again, I thank you all very, very much. It's been, I, I have been humbled to sit here, so it's been a privilege. Thank you very much. And just to close, I wanted to say, obviously, thanks to the panel for coming along and for engaging in what I thought was a really interesting um, discussion, but also to the British Library for hosting us, to the UK and a Changing Europe, who actually uh, supplied <laughs> us with the funds to run this event, to Emma and Tom um, from the Art of Podcast, who are there mm -hmm. doing our recording, and to Chantal Lewis, who did all of the behind-the-scenes organising. As well as to Lawrence Lessard Phillips for helping me with the idea in the first place. So thank you all very much. And thank you for being a wonderful audience, for coming along and bringing your questions with you as well. And yes, thank you. Thank you, <laughs> thank you to Mikola. Thank you for listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. If you've enjoyed what we've been talking about today and want to find out more, check out our website, www.brexitbritsabroad.com. Or you can follow us on social media via Twitter, at BrexPatsEU, and on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And I'll speak to you again soon.